Well, uh, this is a special weekend, and um, we've been together for a number of days already uh, listening to uh, lectures by Dr. Christopher Ewan and his parents, Dr. Leon and Angela. If you were unable to attend the sessions uh, over the last few days, uh, they will be on our website. For sure, the audio version, perhaps also the video version. Uh, that's what you can pray for. Um, Last year, it was wonderful to have uh, Christopher with us, and uh, we found the sessions just to be so authentic and biblical and compassionate and practical. We learned a lot, and as a leadership team, we discerned that we needed to not only revisit some of the things that we had learned, but learn some more and learn how to uh, walk out some of the things that we were learning. So. We were so pleased when we learned that uh, Christopher would be able to come back with his parents. And, uh, you know, Christopher has been prepared by God to speak to us on, on the theme of our day. Uh, he's been very well prepared academically. His degrees from Moody and uh, Wheaton Grad School and uh, Bethel Seminary. His doctoral degree is from Bethel. Uh, written a number of books that you can take a look at later. I'll, I'll say something about them at the end of the message. Um, but prepared by Jesus, as he has uh, searched the scriptures, spent time in prayer, and just allowed the Holy Spirit to work in his life, God has prepared him uniquely to speak to us today. So let's welcome him, Christopher. And let's pray as we begin. So Jesus, we are grateful. We do thank you for uh, drawing Christopher to yourself. Thank you, Father, for your work of grace. And as we think of your work in Christopher's life, we're reminded that it's by your grace that all of us are here. We're so grateful. Jesus, you came full of grace and truth, and you revealed the Father. You revealed the Father's heart. We thank you. And, Jesus, you taught your first disciples and in, in a way that just uh, opened their minds to who the Father was and what it meant to be people dedicated to, to you and to the things of your kingdom. And so, Jesus, we ask today that you teach us. We need your help, Jesus. We depend on you. We ask for your fresh anointing on Christopher to uh, teach your word. May we hear well, understand it, understand your word, and know how to put it into practice in our lives. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Thank you. We live in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. Sexual freedom has essentially become the religion of our land. Ambiguity is now viewed to be a virtue. The deception of our day is this, that your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, the human heart has set itself in defiance against God's perfect ways. The idolatry of sexual identity is really on a collision course with the gospel. 
as my life was on a collision course with the gospel. If you weren't able to be here last year when my parents and I shared about our journey of faith, that the video will be posted online or the audio, hopefully the video will be posted online on the Willingdon website. But my journey of faith began as a gay man and God radically brought me to my knees in prison uh, for, you know, for drug dealing and God radically revealed to me his truth about identity, about the gospel, because I held to this, this false teaching that sexuality was who you are, that your desires define you. But before we as Christians stand up in arms, ready to fight those who have an incorrect view as I did, let us remember the more important battle that is raging, and it's the battle for lost souls. But unfortunately, Christians, we feel very ill-prepared on how to engage our gay neighbor, our gay coworker, our loved one in the gay community. And so we end up doing little or nothing As a matter of fact, Christians, we have a pretty bad reputation. We have a bad reputation when it comes to not just this topic of homosexuality, but in general. There's a book that's called Unchristian, written by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, and they ask young Americans, what do you think about Christians? And by far, it was all negative. Christians, we are viewed in a very, very negative light. But at the very top of the list, we find that Christians, we are viewed to be anti-homosexual. Looking at this list, why would anyone want to be a Christian? Anti-homosexual. Look at those percentages. 91% of those not raised in the church believe that we are anti-homosexual. But then 8 out of 10 of those in the church believe that the same thing. And note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anti-homosexuality, more the issue. But according to this survey, we are viewed to be against gay people. And that is wrong. The gospel is not against anyone. It's for people turning from their sins and turning to Christ, but it's still for people. And so should we, my friends, be for everyone. But unfortunately, people's perception is their reality. So how can we do a better job at engaging on this topic, sharing Christ with those in the gay community, sharing the hope and power of the gospel to those wrestling with same-sex attractions? Well, there's four things that I'm going to center my talk around, four main points. And the first point has to do with our attitude. We need to start with being convicted about our own sin. Before we address others' sin, we need to look at ourselves. Because when I lived as a gay man, I felt Christians were telling me that somehow gays and lesbians deserved a hotter place in hell. That Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for gays and lesbians. But that's so far from the truth. Yes, same-sex relationships are sinful, but it is not the worst sin. But unfortunately, we sometimes give that impression But people will say, well, but it's an abomination, the Bible says, which is true. But the Bible also calls pride an abomination. 
dissension and abomination. So when was the last time your friend was a little prideful and you say, you are abomination? Maybe we should. And when we do, we want to trivialize sin that really grieves God's heart. But others would say, but I just can't help it. When I think about this, I feel uncomfortable when I see it on television or in movies, when I'm driving in Vancouver and I happen to go during that time during gay pride and there's a parade walking by. I think that's crazy. That's disgusting. People even say, but I think that feeling that some people might have, whether it's being uncomfortable or even disgust should really be a reminder for them that it is really just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at their own sin and maybe even more. Because our sin is just as odious in God's eyes than someone else's sin. So it's not the worst sin, but also our sin is just our own sin I'm talking about. Our own sin is just as bad in God's eyes than someone else's sin. Because at the end of the day, my hope is to lead people to Christ. But that's never done through a holier-than-thou attitude. Have you ever met anyone who came to Christ through someone who was prideful? Oh, I came to Jesus. This lady, she was so pompous. I've never heard that, ever. It's always humility, gentleness, compassionate, being broken about their own sin. That is what draws people, not a holier-than-thou attitude. So, first and foremost, let's be broken about our own sins, convicted, leading humility, And then second, we need to be consistent. Consistent in three ways. First of all, regarding relationships. What is your relationship status? Are you married or are you single? And your relationship status greatly impacts the way people view you. We view marriage to be better than singleness. Singleness is not as good. You're not uh, on par with other married people. You might think, well, I kind of see that, but what does this have to do with my gay friend? A lot. Because when we tell our gay friend that it's not God's will for you to be in a same-sex relationship, well, what does that mean for them practically today? If they were to follow Christ, don't be in a same-sex relationship. And if so, that means then they'd be single for a period in their life, if not the rest of their life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive in Christian community today? Not so much. Singles feel like second-class citizens. We often give give the impression that singleness is equated to loneliness. That's what my gay friends tell me. What you're saying is your God wants me to be lonely for the rest of my life. But singleness is not the same as loneliness. Because I know some people who are married that are still miserably lonely. So marriage is not the cure to loneliness. You know what's the cure to loneliness? It begins with a relationship with God. That is the cure to loneliness, not another person. But we confuse and conflate that marriage is happiness. Marriage is equivalent to succeeding in life. I teach at Moody Bridal Institute. It's pretty crazy what happens on our campus. There's all this intense need that they have to get married because that's, if they don't, then they can't be whole, they can't be happy. And I'm not saying marriage is not a good thing, that, that people shouldn't pursue marriage. We should. 
but we shouldn't idolize it. Let me tell you one of the most deceptive forms of idolatry is when we worship something good. Good things are not meant to be worshipped. Only God is. We need to continue to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. But let me tell you what I think we have done. I think we have done that at the expense of singleness. So now singleness, at best, is a consolation prize. I'm sorry you're single. We look at singles and we feel sorry for them. Do you know Christian singles, they don't really need our pity. What they need is to be loved. What they need is to be shown that they are part of the true family, which is the church. I have a friend who was a missionary in China. She left the U.S. for China single. She was there for five years. She went back to the U.S. single. And when she was back in the U.S. on furlough, she saw several of her friends. And when she met up with them, they will all ask her similar questions like, how is China? What are your future ministry plans? And then it would get to some personal things like, are you dating anyone? Do you have anyone special in your life? And each time she said, no, no, not yet. Do you know how some of her friends responded to her? Can I pray for you? (laughs) It was as if she had cancer. Singleness is not cancer. It's not a curse. But we treat it like it is. We treat it like the unbearable burden, the problem that people need to be fixed of, the problem of singleness. That's why we need to say, we often say, I want to fix you up with someone. Think about the words we use. We need to look to God's word to see what he says about singleness. Do you know in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that not only is singleness good, but he says that it's a gift, truly a gift. But can I tell you, give you a little bit of advice for those of you in this room that are not single? Don't keep reminding your single friends that this is a gift. I know very few Christian singles that actually like that, that verse. You know, I don't, actually, I don't know anyone that has made that their life verse. Hallelujah. You know, I love it when Paul says that it's a gift. Usually it's the opposite. I don't think it's a, I don't, it does not feel like a gift to me. It's, it's, you know, it's like a bad Christmas present. You know, still got that receipt. I'm going to give it back. Like, what's the return policy? Can I give it back like a bad, or re-gift it? And I understand that as a single man, I'm 48 years old, I'm not married, and I know how difficult it can be to be a single man. But having spoken to some married people, I also hear that marriage can be difficult. But though marriage may be difficult, there's also some blessings that come with marriage. In the same way, singleness is difficult. But there's also some blessings that come with being single. Then why is it that we seem to only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenges of singleness? Do you see how this is starkly inconsistent and unbiblical? Singleness is, I mean, we can all agree that marriage is a gift. Hallelujah, people will say, it's a gift. When it comes to singleness, 
We don't say the same thing. Instead, you know what we say? We say singleness. Whew, that's a calling, seriously. Not anyone can be single. You have to be either Superman or Wonder Woman to be single, which I don't know if you've noticed, but most superheroes are single. What's that communicating to our kids? You have to have superhuman powers just to be single. Probably not the best thing to teach our kids. And my, the majority of my Christian friends are married. They're even happily married. But they do tell me that marriage is not easy. It takes work. Giving of yourselves, that's not easy. Loving unconditionally, that's difficult. Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands, lay your life down for your wives. Amen, wives? Amen, ladies? It'll be... (laughs) And you know, so do you know what I say tongue-in-cheek about marriage? I say marriage, whew, that's a calling, seriously. (laughs) Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. But I'm not saying that singleness is better than marriage because that would be unbiblical. I'm simply looking at the full counsel of God and recognizing that godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should no longer emphasize one over against the other. Because honestly, I don't think we're ready to address this issue of sexuality until we first redeem singleness. Second, we need to be consistent regarding sexuality. What is God's standard for sexuality? Oh, it's easy. It's heterosexuality because if homosexuality is not God's will, it must be God's will that heterosexuality is then God's will. I even know people who will advocate and um, counsel people who are coming out of a same-sex relationship, and they will counsel them to pursue their heterosexual potential. But let's critique that concept. Heterosexuality, is that truly God's goal or God's standard? Heterosexuality means being attracted to someone of the, of the, to being attracted to someone of the opposite sex or being sexually intimate with someone of the opposite sex. That's a pretty broad definition. So broad that I could be a man and I'm sleeping with half a dozen women. Or I could be a married man and I'm cheating on my wife with another woman. I could be a single man or an unmarried man. But I have a girlfriend. We actually even live together, but we're not married. We also have a couple children together out of wedlock. Those three scenarios that I gave you are considered heterosexual, but sinful in God's eyes. God would not use a standard that included sin. Heterosexuality is too broad. There's too many various types of heterosexual relationships that are sinful. Certainly, marriage is considered a form of heterosexuality, but it's not the only form. And though marriage might be blessed by God, all the other forms of heterosexual heterosexual relationships are sinful. And in our world of infinite shades of gray, we should not be ambiguous as the world is. We must be razor sharp, clear, clear, clear on what exactly God is calling us to. 
So if it's not heterosexuality, it's not homosexuality, then what is it? What is it that God is calling us to? God is calling us to holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? When I read through the full counsel of God, I recognize that there's only two paths for us to be on. First path, if you are not married, how do you live faithful to God regarding your sexuality? You live faithful to God by being sexually abstinent. If you're no longer single and you are married, how do you live faithful to God regarding your sexuality? You live faithful to God by being faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So there's only two paths, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And as I recognized that, I saw that there was no one term that included both of those, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. So I created a term, holy sexuality. And what I like about that phrase is that that phrase applies to everyone. Doesn't matter if you're young or old. Doesn't matter if you're man or woman. Doesn't matter if you have opposite sex attractions, same sex attractions, or both. We all need to pursue holiness in Christ. But you might think, okay, that's fine. But my gay friend only has that one path to be single for the rest of his life. Not necessarily so. So I have a friend that, that helps explain this point. He lived as a gay man for many years. He came to Christ, and he stopped pursuing same-sex relationships. He was a part of a great church, a vibrant church. They were like his family, his support group. He became really close friends with a young lady, another new Christian. She came from a broken past that had nothing to do with homosexuality, but like many of her friends, she dated young men. She was sexually active. She even had, unfortunately, a couple abortions. So when she came to Christ, because many of those relationships were a bit toxic, she decided that she was not going to date because she really wanted to focus on a relationship with God first. So the two of them became really close friends. They felt safe. There wasn't that tension that happens often between a young man and a young lady. You know what I mean? Does he like me? Does she like me? Because he knew she didn't want to date, and she knew he didn't like girls. So they were this great, I mean, they were just best buddies. <laughs> so after some time of being best, best friends he began noticing some things about her that he never noticed before, like her hair. She smelled good, and she had curves. <laughs> he says, puberty is hard going through once, try going through puberty twice. <laughs> he got up enough courage, asked her out on a date, and after some time of dating, he asked her, to marry him. And on their wedding night, he told his new bride, 
He said, honey, I cannot explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy sexuality. That displays the power of God. Holiness is not something that we can accomplish on our own. Holiness is not works righteousness. It's not dependent upon our own strength. Holiness is a gift from God. Whether you're single or whether you're married. Holiness is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. So we need to be consistent regarding relationships, sexuality, and third, we need to be consistent regarding change. What does change look like? Does change mean going from gay to straight? No, I just said that. So how about, does change mean no longer having any temptation? So in other words, if a young lady who's come out of some lesbian relationships and she's no longer pursuing same-sex relationships, and yet she still experiences same-sex attractions, would she not be changed? Would that be something that, like, no, she hasn't been changed? Well, would we apply that standard for anything else? So say I have a friend who was a drunk. He comes to Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he no longer drinks. But he doesn't. And, uh, but after years of sobriety, he admits that he still has an urge to drink, but he doesn't. Would we tell him, you haven't been changed? Would we tell him, we need to lay some hands on you, you need some deliverance? I hope not. Because the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh daily and says yes to Christ. So therefore, change is not the absence of temptations. God does not promise you that when you come to Christ, you will not be tempted anymore. That's not true. Think about this. Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way, the writer of Hebrews says, but he is without sin. Being tempted is not sin. Giving in to temptation is sin. So therefore, change is not the absence of temptations. But change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. God's faithfulness is not proven by taking the temptation away out of your life. That's not how God works. God's faithfulness is shown by carrying us through it. That's how God works. So change is, um, so it's, first, it's conviction. Second, we need to be consistent in three ways regarding relationships, sexuality, and change. And then third, we need to be compassionate. I've been teaching at Moody for 11 years and every year I have students that confide with me about their struggle with same-sex attractions. And many times they tell me that they haven't told anyone. And because of that isolation, 
A few of them suffer with depression and even thoughts of suicide. That should move us. That we have people who, for whatever reason, feel that they can't share this with another. We can share about other sin struggles, but not this. So for some, this is an issue between life and death. So what can we do to be a more compassionate, safe place? The world talks about being safe, right? Pretty much safe for everyone except Christians. But the world talks about being a safe space. But I wonder, should not the body of Christ be the safest place in the world? Are we safe? But you know, I don't want to just be safe because safe just means that we can tell whatever is on our mind and we don't have to keep any secrets and we can be transparent like that. That's, that is kind of more worldly safe. Christian safe means that we are safe. We should be able to say what's on our mind, what we're struggling with, but it's something more in that we're safe and redemptive and that we're going to point each other to Christ. So how do we be safe and redemptive? First of all, we need to expect that this is present here. In our pews, in our homes, in our small groups. Not be surprised. I still get people who are shocked when they find out their old friend experiencing same-sex attraction. It's like they say, I don't know how that happened. They came from a good home. They had Christian parents. They were even homeschooled. And I want to say, wait one second. Are you really saying that if someone had Christian parents, the good home, they're even homeschooled, that they are somehow exempt from struggling with sin? Okay, newsflash. I'm sensing in this room right now, there's a big group of you, there's probably at least maybe three, four, maybe five of you in this room that's struggling with sin. Don't raise your hand, I don't want to embarrass you. We're all struggling with sin, right? I mean, nothing new. We're all broken. We all, I mean, what's the body of Christ? Are we a group of people that don't have any problems, got our ducks in a row, we hold hands once a week and we sing Kumbaya? Is that what we are? Or is the body of Christ a group of people who know that they are broken, needy, and they desperately need Christ? I'll just be honest with you. I am broken and I need Christ Anyone else out there that relates to that at all in any way? And so let us all, hand in hand, walk together to him. Not because I can fix you. I can't. Not because I have the answers. I don't. But I know someone who does. And his name is Jesus. We must recognize that we all need Christ We do not need to separate ourselves into different sin groups. I mean, in our day of being so separated and and fractured, and we don't need to be more segregated. Certainly, your sin might look a little different from her sin and his sin and her sin, but at the end of the day, it is a sin issue. And if it's a sin issue, the problem is our own sin nature. Let's not blame other things. We need, to, we need to look ourselves and say, I'm the cause, I'm a sinner. And therefore, when you recognize that, guess what happens? We look to Christ. Sin is a problem, Jesus is the answer. 
And that might sound simplistic, but that's the gospel is pretty simplistic. To live it out is more difficult. To live it out is where we flesh things out. But at the base, we have to recognize that this is a God-sized problem that man cannot solve. We need to expect that this is present here and be united as the body of Christ. Though we're different, we're united in our need for Christ. Second, know your position. And your position can't simply be, this is wrong, don't do it. Like if I'm going to have any position, like, like the main takeaway, I want it to be this. I want to lead people into a deeper relationship with Christ. Not just that they know Jesus. Because if you think about it, demons know Jesus, right? It's making no difference in their lives. I'm talking about a deeper relationship with Christ. But for what reason? So that we are willing to surrender everything to him. Following, yes, it seems simplistic, but following Christ really isn't that simplistic. Jesus, when he pulled his disciples aside, made it really clear. He did not mince his words when he told them what it means to follow him. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow me. You know what we want to do? We want to skip over those first two things. We don't want to deny yourself. We don't want to pick up our cross daily. We want to follow Jesus. You can't if you don't deny yourself and pick up your cross. We think that that passage Deny yourself, pick up your cross, is for super-Christians. Like, like it's just for pastors. It's just for missionaries. If anyone means if anyone. Oh, well, but I do bear my burden. I mean, every day, like, I, you know, I have to put up with, you know, uh, uh, my, my, whatever it is. I have to put up with, you know, a, a co-worker that's always hounding me or a boss who's hard, you know, he's, he's an atheist. And I bear my cross. Bearing your cross doesn't mean bearing a burden or hardship or suffering. Every instance in the first century when they mentioned the cross, it was not bearing a burden. You know what it meant? Death. As a matter of fact, one of the most gruesome, hard, painful forms of death Pick that up and follow Christ. This easy, easy follow Jesus has nothing to do with the gospel that we talk about. Following Christ is about denying yourself, picking up your cross. Following Jesus should cost us everything. And if it hasn't, you're following the wrong Jesus. Because it's only when we give up everything and God allows us to keep some things, we know those things are no longer ours, they're all his. Because when we die to self, that's really the only time that Christ can live in us and we can truly be who we truly are in Christ. So denying ourselves that's 
if I'm going to have any position, it's that. It's about complete and uh, giving up of everything. That's my position. That's my takeaway that I want people to remember. It's about full surrender and complete union with Christ. Third, maybe you have a friend who you've always wondered in the back of your mind whether they're wrestling with this. And so you're thinking, man, how do I ask? Because I want to walk with them through this. Don't. Imagine if you, someone came up to you out of the blue and asked, do you have same-sex attractions? Awkward. I'll just let you know. Awkward. But what you can do is give assurance of your fr- friendship and tell them, I thank God that he put you in my life, and I just want you to know anything you say or do won't change my love for you or my friendship. When you do that, you've just created a safe space and invited them in. Actually, we should be doing that with all of our close friends. Fourth, let's have zero tolerance when it comes to the gay jokes or the bullying. There's nothing Christian about making fun or bullying other people. And you might think, well, I don't really bully, but I often see Christian adults who will joke. Say a gay joke, could be a hand gesture, or could be talking with a lisp. Might be funny for the moment, but you never know when someone can be an earshot of that joke, and maybe they're wrestling themselves with same-sex attractions, or maybe they had just their gay son just came out to them, and they're thinking, "Well, I'm definitely not sharing that here." The church should never be viewed as unsafe. So, can we help our youth, who often might say things like, "Well, that's so gay." That shirt is so gay. A shirt can't be gay. How about help them expand their vocabulary? Instead of saying that's so gay, how about that's so Baptist or that's so Presbyterian or, you know, whatever, something really creative like that. (laughs) Convicted, consistent, compassionate, and lastly, complete. And when I say complete, I'm talking about complete in what we communicate, complete in our message. We need to focus upon God's truth because it's the truth that sets us free. So the question is, well, what is the truth when it comes to same-sex relationships? Oh, that's easy. It's a sin. Yes, but is that all? Because many times, that's all people say. It's a sin. That's it. And you know that's equivalent to giving someone a one spiritual law tract You guys heard of the four spiritual laws? This is the one spiritual law that goes something like this. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. In case you didn't know, there's nothing good about that. But that's the message we've been giving to the gay community. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why the gay community want nothing to do with us. Because we have not been giving them the good news. We have been telling them the bad news only. We have not been sharing them the complete truth. We've been telling them an incomplete truth. And you know, telling someone an incomplete truth can be just as harmful as telling someone a lie. So what is the complete truth? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he lists 10 sins, and in this list of 10 sins are two words in the Greek that focus upon homosexual behavior. 
Many times people look at this list and zero in on those two Greek words and say, look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. When they do that, they conveniently forget about the eight other sins. Because if we look at all 10 sins, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. But you know, I praise the Lord that Paul did not stop there. He goes on to say one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 11, such were. Catch that. What what tense is that verb, were? Past tense. Such were. Some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That is not good news. That's amazing news. That is news that we can declare to anyone who needs to know about Jesus Christ. Our friends in the gay community... Their main problem is not their sexuality. Their main problem is to know and fully surrender to Christ. You know, my biggest sin was not being in a same-sex relationship. My biggest sin was unbelief. That is what separated me from God. We need to focus upon the most important thing. It is faith in Christ and relationship with him that has to always be the first thing, not other things. Not whether it's their behavior or those are just under, after. I mean, how in the world can someone live a holy life apart from knowing Christ? You can't. So how do you be redemptive as we minister So I'm going to focus upon two groups, believers who have experienced attraction toward the same sex, how do we minister to them, and then how do we share Christ with those in the gay community who don't know Christ, who hold to a wrong view of sexuality, who believe that it's okay to be in a same-sex relationship. So we need to share them the true gospel. So let me focus upon this first group. Say after this weekend you have a good friend that confides with you that they're wrestling with same-sex attractions. Do you know what to say or do? First, thank them. Thank them that they just trusted you with this really private matter. The fact that they opened up to you says a lot about you. Thank them. Don't freak out, thank them, but also ask open-ended questions. Tell them, tell me more. Ask them, how does your faith fit into this? Because what we want to hear is, my faith is strong. I might have these desires, but my faith is my compass. That I'm, my faith is guiding my desires as opposed to the other way around as opposed to their desires is guiding their faith. That's when we lose our moorings. Our faith, and and this applies to every one of us. Every moment of the day, we must decide, am I going to follow my desires or am I going to follow 
my faith in Christ. That's a constant battle for all of us. What is more important to be, my desires or faith in Christ? Second, tell them that they're not alone. Many believers in Christ who are wrestling with their sexuality think that they have to go through life alone. No one will ever understand them. And you can be honest. You can tell them, this is not something I wrestle myself. I don't know that much about this. But tell them that you're committed to walk with them to Jesus. Because here is one problem that I think we've been facing for many years. We think that this can only be helped by an expert. We think that an individual, if they come to us and they have same-sex attractions, we get thrown off. Because I often hear people say, well, I don't know how to help him because I don't know, I don't have same-sex attractions myself. Like, I don't know what to do. As if an individual or a Christian needs to know everything about a sin or they need to struggle with that sin themselves to help another person struggling with that sin. Let's think this through. Do you have to shoot up with heroin to help a heroin addict? Yes or no? No. Do you need to look at pornography to help a porn addict? Yes or no? No. Do you need to commit adultery to help an adulterer? Yes or no? No. If you have had, if you know Christ and you have had some victory over your sin, you can help another individual. So do not allow Satan to immobilize you into thinking you can't help. Because oftentimes, the first response that I often hear when people, you know, they share their first and only response is they refer a person out. And when we do is we're pushing people outside the very context, the church, where we can really get help for sin. The problem is sin. Christ is the answer. Not to say that we need to get others who might be more experts to help and guide us, but don't just shove them into another as if shrug off the responsibility. If you know Christ, you can help someone to some point because this is, this is, this is the truth. When someone comes to you in their time of need and they're struggling with sin, you know what they don't really need most? What they really don't need most is an expert. But what they do need is a Christian friend, a Christian brother, a Christian sister who will point them to Christ. Third, and this could be one of the most important points here at the end, we need to remind each other that we need to put our identity in Christ. I don't know of any other sin issue where we had, have made sexuality who we are. If you ask a friend who says, I am gay, anymore when they, when they describe what do they mean, they say, well, when I say I'm gay, they will not say this is what I feel, this is what I do. These are my attractions or these are my desires. It's always in the context of this is who I am. 
Sexuality should not be who we are. It's how we are. And even when people say, well, when I say gay, I'm only referring that, uh, uh, you know, that it refers to my desires for the same sex. But that doesn't really kind of put in context the reality of vocabulary. Vocabulary words always have multiple layers of meaning. And when the world uses a term, gay, straight, to refer to who we are as Christians, we should say no, that's not who we are. Who we are should be bound up in Christ alone, nothing else. Fourth, we need to be realistic. Don't give these false promises that, oh, it's so easy. Come to Jesus and you'll have no more problems. Like, I'm not too sure where you find that in the Bible. Because let me tell you, it was easier before I came to Christ. I did whatever I wanted. I had an itch, I scratched it. I had desire, I did it. Now I have a heavenly father nipping at my heels. Uh, or I have an enemy nipping at my, my heels. And, and, and I have a heavenly father that I want to please. But the difference is, though I have an enemy nipping at my heels, my joy is not bound up in this world. My joy is not bound up in my circumstances. It's bound up in Christ. That's the difference. The gospel is costly, but it's worth it. Fifth, don't focus on the externals, whether how someone walks or talks, because I want to see radical change from the inside out. That's how the gospel works. Sixth, we need to encourage God-honoring friendships and brotherhoods within the spiritual family, which is the local church. We often try to, our answer oftentimes to sexual brokenness has to do with almost everything except the local church. And that's where true discipleship happens. That's where accountability happens. That's where you hear the word of God being preached. We need to bring people back into the church and make that the main locus for healing. So how then do we share Christ with those in the gay community? Let me tell you what you shouldn't do. Do not compare this with an addiction, pedophilia, murder. That's just not a good way to win, win people to Christ. Also, don't use the two words lifestyle or choice. I never use those words as a gay man. And you know why? Because I had the wrong identity. Third, don't say the phrase love the sinner, hate the sin. Just do it. Don't say it. Fourth, don't feel the need that you have to debate with people and argue with people. We should defend the truth, but don't feel like we have to be argumentative. And actually, you don't always have to answer a person's question. Do you think this is sin? They may say. Convincing someone of God's morals will never save them. It's faith in Christ. I keep coming back to that. Faith in Christ that saves people. And so I think it's okay to deflect and say, you don't even believe in God. Why does it matter what is God's morals? So let's talk about God first. Let's talk about Jesus first. So if that's not what we should do, what should we do? First, we need to pray. Pray and fast. You know, my mom prayed and she fasted every Monday for seven years for me. She once fasted 39 days on my behalf. Actually, the whole story is talked about in my first book, Out of Our Country, how she prayed and fasted. How many of you guys have heard the story or the movie um, War Room? You guys remember that? So that movie uh, was produced and written by Stephen, uh, Kendrick Brothers. 
they then wanted to turn that movie into a book so that the book and movie would be released at the same time. So they partnered with an author, Chris Fabry, to write out uh, the movie into a book. It was published by Tyndale House. We got a complimentary copy just in the mail, kind of surprised. We opened it up and we saw that Chris Fabry had dedicated the book to my mom. Do battle for those people who are unable to stand in the gap. Who's praying for the gay community? Who's fasting for the gay community? Second, listen. Don't be quick to speak, but be quick to listen. If you want others to listen to you, you must listen to them first. Third, be intentional. You know the gay community, they're not going to come knocking on your door to say, hey, let's be friends, let's, you know, let's hang out. No, we need to reach out. Go across the street, invite your gay neighbor over for dinner. Oh, but wouldn't that be condoning their sin? That's a good question. But you know, last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. Nothing new, nothing new. <laughs> you're just eating with them, you're not sinning with them. Fourth, be patient and persistent. It's going to take time for God to work in someone's life. It's going to take, if God was in the long haul for you, let's be in the long haul for others. For me to turn around in seven years is actually a short time. I know people who've been praying for decades. Lastly, be transparent. Just be real. Talk about what God is doing in your life today. People can argue with you. You open up your Bible and they begin running, right? I mean, <laughs> you open up your Bible, that's, that's usually that's a good sign for people to exit, right? I'm out of here. But what they can argue with is what God is doing in your life. If you're a believer in Christ, you should not be the same as you were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or even 10 weeks ago. God should be continually, radically transforming you. Talk about that. Do you know, I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives. I wouldn't have picked up the Bible from the trash can. Do you remember that? I was in prison and I picked up the Bible from the trash can of all things. I wouldn't have picked that up if I didn't see the Bible lived out in my mother's life and in my father's life. I didn't leave pursuing same-sex relationships because someone convinced me they were sinful. No. I left it because I was shown something better. And his name is Jesus. Our job as followers of Christ is to show a dying world out there that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fool's gold in the world, a job, career, money, or even good things like family or children or spouse, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but Jesus is best. So my prayer for us is that we would live our lives in a way that it is unmistakable that not only is following Jesus better, but Jesus is best. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, God, that it is only in you that we are able to turn from our flesh, turn from our sin for your glory.
God, help us in the context of our own lives, whatever our struggles might be, Lord, that we do not put our identity in other things that confuse and, and, and make it unclear about who we are. God, I pray that our lives would be a reflection of the new birth, that it, we would be salt and light. God, enable us to reach out to those in the gay community and point them to you. But also ourselves, Lord, help us, Father, to live radically sold-out lives for you. We praise you, God. We love you. Help us to love you more. And we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And the people of God said, amen.